Our Old Testament reading is from the book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 29, verses 10 through 20. David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heavens, in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you, and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the King. The word of the Lord. Today's psalm is Psalm 144. We will begin responsibly by whole verse. We'll read responsibly by whole verse. Blessed be the Lord my strength, who teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight. O Lord, what is man that you have shown such respect to him, or the son of man that you so regard him? Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains, and they shall smoke. Send down your hand from above. Deliver me, and take me out of the great waters from the hand of strangers. I will sing a new song unto you, O God and sing praises unto you upon a ten-stringed lute. You have given victory to kings, and have delivered David's servant 
Save me and deliver me from the hand of strangers whose mouth talks of vain things and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. That our storehouses may be full and plenteous with all manner of grain, that our sheep may bring forth thousands and tens thousands ten thousands in our fields. Happy are the people of whom this is so. Blessed are the people who have the Lord for their God. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Our New Testament reading today is from Paul's first letter to Timothy, chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. If we have but food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The word of the Lord. Our gospel lesson this morning comes from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Church, this is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. And the manager said to himself, What should I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am too ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people will receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. Then he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation 
than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which belongs to another, who will give you that which belongs to you? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. We've been looking at some of the parables of Luke, the stories that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke, that he tells to his followers about what the kingdom of God is like and, and how we're supposed to fit into it. And, and a lot of the parables are really sweet. It's, you know, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's the, the smallest seed that anyone can imagine. And yet, with, with time and care, it grows up into this beautiful tree. Or um, the kingdom of God is like a, a man who finds an incredibly valuable pearl in a field. And he goes and he sells everything that he has just to buy that field so he can have that pearl. It's a great story and it's very sweet and it's very nice. And then we get this. We get this story that I just read about a rich man who finds out that his, uh, his steward, his agent, the, the guy that he's appointed to oversee his operations, he finds out that this steward is cheating him. He tells him that he's going to get fired. And so this employee, in an effort to kind of secure some sort of future for himself, because he, he's too weak to dig and he's too proud to beg, he, he finds a way to cheat the rich man even more so that the rich man's clients might do him a favor. And then the rich man, on discovering this, seemingly congratulates the employee for his cheating. And then it almost sounds like Jesus is saying, now you, little flock, you go and do likewise. If we're honest with ourselves, there are parts of the Bible that are harder to understand than other parts. Yes, the, the Bible is God's primary means that he has revealed himself to his people. The, the Bible is the way that God paints this story of redemption, of, of the creation, and then man's fall, and then his restoration, and then finally the consummation of all things. And yes, the Bible is understandable. God has made it, he wrote it in a common language so that we could understand it. God has made his revelation clear to us. But if we're honest, some parts are harder to understand than others. And frankly, for me anyway, this is one of them. I was talking with a couple of pastor friends of mine this week, and, and we all agree that this is one of those parts in the Gospels that we, which we could just kind of skip over and get back to Jesus saying, you know, love one another as I have loved you. I actually read a lot of commentaries on this this week, and, and almost all of them had some version of the following. There has been an impressive amount of ink spilled on this particular passage in Luke. And at the end of the day, we as a church are no closer to a unified and coherent version of what this, of what this parable means than we were when we started. I will not pretend this morning that I am going to be the one to crack the code. I'm not going to pretend that I'm a good enough preacher or a good enough reader of Greek or a good enough exegete to be able to tell you 
what God really meant here, but I can tell you what I think, and I can tell you about the value in wrestling with a very difficult text like this. Because at the end of the day, when you are a Christian, when you are, when you are part of Christ's church, when you've committed to follow him, we are following Jesus. We aren't following a doctrine, and we aren't following a part of Jesus, the part where Jesus, you know, where God is love, or God is justice. We're not following things, we're following a person. And if the Bible's true, and if, if this account of what Jesus said is true, then Jesus actually said these words. And if that's true, then, and if he's important to us, then we should, we should wrestle with him. So what I think is going on here is Jesus tells this parable about the rich man and his untrustworthy steward. This is a story about priorities, and it's a story about worldviews, and it's a story about correctly placing your correct worship and incorrect worship. It's about, it's about correct, correctly placing your love versus incorrectly placing it. So, it's kind of pointing to a, a worldly or an unsanctified version of, of how people, how God has made human beings to be intelligent and wise and smart. And how they can use their wits and how they can use the gifts that God has given them, whether they acknowledge that they are from him or not. How they can use their wits and their money to try to save their own life. And then Jesus at the end is saying, so then, you followers of me, how much more, how much more should you be using your wits and the resources that God has given you in service of his kingdom? At least I think that's what it's saying. Um, so, let's take a look at this potentially confusing parable of Jesus. If you brought a Bible with you, turn to Luke chapter 16. If you didn't bring a Bible but would like to follow along, there are blue Bibles on that little low wooden table in the back, and you can use one of them. And if you don't own a Bible, then one of those blue Bibles is our gift to you, and you can take it with you. Now, it sounds like on first listen, when we start in Luke 16, that Jesus is commending lying and deceit. And that he's telling his followers then to go use underhanded and dirty business practices, up to and including stealing from someone, in order to make friends and in order to get ourselves out of a jam. Is that possibly what Jesus is saying? Is there any evidence that Jesus ever did anything like that himself? That he ever used underhanded means to further his own security or safety? It's very confusing. Part of reading any parable is figuring out who's who in the story. Now, there has been a, a resurgence in the last hundred years or so that's been very helpful to read things like this in the Bible. Understanding the cultural context that it was written in. Understanding the, the Jewish context of the ancient Near East and the, 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 the context of first century Palestine. The regional customs that would have been going on there at the time. That, that's really helpful for this. For instance, According to Old Testament law, Jews were forbidden to charge interest when they lent money. And yet, people with money still want to make money. So how do they get around this? They get around it by doing something called lending in kind. They would lend stuff instead of lend money. Because the Bible says that you can't charge, you can't charge interest when you lend money, but it doesn't say that you can't charge interest when you lend wheat or oil. And so, hey, here's 10 flasks of oil. You can have it for a few months. 
At the end of that month, at the end of those few months, you owe me 12 flasks of oil. You're not breaking a law by charging interest because it's not money, but you're still making a profit. And so some theologians and some historians think that this, this rich owner was not as magnanimous or, or maybe as neutral as he might appear. He probably was every bit as underhanded as this steward was. In fact, what the steward was doing was actually possibly just removing the interest payments off of what these people owed him. Because at that time, it says in verse 6, it says one debtor owed 100 measures of oil, or actually it says 100 baths of oil. Uh, if, you, if you work that out, it's, it's about 800 gallons of oil, or about what 150 olive trees could produce. You convert that into money, that's three years' wages for the average worker. And so this steward comes along and says, well, let me cut that debt in half. He may very well have been just taking off the interest. But cutting the debt in half, cutting a year and a half off your three-year note that you owe to somebody, that is a huge savings. And then the second guy comes in with the wheat. And again, this would have been several years' worth of debt that this person owed, a hundred measures of wheat. And our crafty steward takes 25% of that right off the top, which is a genuinely significant savings. So it's no wonder that the steward suspected that by doing this, these these clients of his owner might feel kindly to him, might maybe give him a place to stay, some food to eat. And then the rich owner actually commends the steward for his craftiness, for his ability to, to look out for himself, for his ability to look down the road, see what's coming, evaluate his own abilities and say, I got to make a change. I got to do something. I have to set things up for my own benefit. But just because the owner is praising the steward, are we supposed to think that Jesus is praising the steward? We are not. We are not. And actually, verse 8 and 9 help with this. This is, this is one of those parables where it's really helpful because Jesus actually gives the direct application of what this story means. In verse 8, the manager commended the dishonest, the, the master, sorry, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Because the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the children of light. Those two phrases, children of this world and children of light. It kind of sounds like kingdom of man, kingdom of God. So the, the people of this world are shrewd at, at dealing with their own generation, it actually says. Or the people of this world are, are adept at looking out for their own future than God's covenant family is. And so Jesus here is actually providing almost a little bit of a rebuke. The steward is looking for his future, and he, he, did, he did his best to make a future that would make him happy, that would satisfy him, that would give him security. Because he knows that nobody else is going to do that for him. He knows that there's no safety or security aside from what he can win for himself, what he can make on his own. So he used his intellect and his resources to try and craft the best future that was in line with that worldview. Nobody's going to do this for me. I have to do it myself. Make your future. And he doesn't. But Jesus here is saying that, that, his, that his people, his followers, the children of light, are not as good at this. What does he mean? I think he means that if, 
If this man, this unrighteous steward, is going to look down the road and say, nobody's going to, nobody's going to help me out at all. I have to go make my future. And then he does it. If, if we took the same time to look down the road, we would realize a few things very clearly. One, Jesus is king. He is the eternal king of this world. We are told his reign can never end. And his crown will never fade away. Second, if we are united to Christ in faith, then, then we ourselves are heirs of, that, of the promises of God in Christ. And so what does that mean? It means that our future is known. That our safety and our security is known. It's already been talked about. God knows exactly what's going to happen. God has said that he will provide for his people every possible thing that they need. And so our future is known and our future is personal. Because Christ will come again. Christ will come again and when he does, he's going to bring heaven down to earth. He's going to bring resurrection life to all of his people. And he's going to make all things new. So given that, if we put ourselves in the, in the place of this child of, of the world, this shrewd manager, how are we supposed to then use our wit and our intellect and our resources? What is Jesus telling us about how should we be shrewd? Verse 9, he actually does it. He says, and I tell you, which is really key. Like anytime Jesus says, I tell you this, or I tell you the truth, or amen, amen, I say to you, that means that's like the rabbi or the master, like basically saying, he, he's like wrapping up his sermon. He's speaking directly to people, like write this down. So in verse 9, he says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What does that mean? It is the most confusing sentence of this parable, but I also know for a fact that it's the direct application. What is that supposed to mean? So, if I'm supposed to make friends for myself by means of unrighteous wealth, does that mean that I can be like this guy and cheat my boss, but I'm doing it because I'm on the side of the angels, so I'm doing it like for the good of the kingdom? Can I use unrighteous means to get stuff for myself? Can I use worldly means to make worldly friends? Have a bigger social network? Have a good time? It's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying, what he's saying is that much like the steward took what God had given him, whether he recognized that it was from God or not, he took what God had given him and he used it to, to the best extent of his abilities based on his knowledge of the future. And so what Jesus is saying is that we need to take what God has given us and to use it shrewdly. And shrewdly doesn't mean underhanded or cunning or, or sneaky. It means wise and discerning, piercing and perceiving. And so we take what God has given us and use it discerningly, if that's a word. The steward looked down the road. He saw what was coming. He did his best with the tools at his disposal to craft his future in light of what he knew to happen. You and I, we too, as children of light, as, as people of the promise, as part of this royal priesthood, of, of this royal kingdom of priests, a holy nation, we can look down the road, we can see what's coming, and we can use the tools and the intellect and the resources at our disposal that God has given us for his purposes in light of his future. 
The future for this steward in Jesus' parable was bleak, and he acted accordingly. The future for the children of the world is bleak, and so it should be no surprise to us when they act accordingly. The future for the children of light is Jesus. The future for the children of light is pure goodness and abundance. And so Jesus is saying to his followers, and I think to us as well, why don't you act accordingly? Why do we act like the children of the world in trying to secure our own future when that future has already been secured by somebody other than us, when it has already been secured by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus? I think it's no coincidence that Jesus, in, this, in telling this story, that he made this man a steward, a, a, a manager, a, a, an owner's agent, someone who's like the underboss, as the main character that maybe we should think to identify ourselves with. Because, friends, that is each and every one of us. And I don't even mean each and every Christian. I mean each and every person on this planet was put here to be a steward. It doesn't just mean the people with money. It doesn't just mean the people with power or influence. It's what we were made to be. Every single human being made in the image of God. Every single human being as a species made to be stewards of this creation. To reflect God's goodness into his creation. To reflect his creation's goodness back up to God. Fill the earth and have dominion over it. Name the animals. Tend to the plants. Be my image bearers. Be my stewards in my creation. You get to be in charge. Now go do it wisely and do it well. Do it shrewdly. One commentator put it this way. Disciples should learn from the children of this world who act boldly and decisively to try to secure their earthly future. And so we too should act boldly and decisively, but not to secure an earthly future, but in light of our eternal future. As this steward, this agent, recognizes his crisis and moves shrewdly to, to gain security in this world, so disciples should shrewdly, I have to keep saying that word, should shrewdly use their worldly possessions, which are only on temporary loan from God, in deeds of mercy, to store up treasures for ourselves in heaven. And then I would add this to that commentator. We take what God has given us, which was his anyway. He's just, it's just on loan to us. We take what God has given us to do our part in the, in the mission that God has in his world, in the mission that God has given to his people and to his church. Can God accomplish this mission without us? Yes, he can. Absolutely. But we get to participate in it. Because he has declared not only the ends, not only the ends of, how, of, of what happens, Christ returns bring heaven to earth. And people from every tribe, tongue, and nation come streaming into this holy city in the presence of, of the light himself that we don't need, the city doesn't even need lamps and the world no longer needs a sun or a moon because the light is in our midst. So people from every tribe, tongue, and nation come streaming into this city as Christ makes all things new. That's the ends. That's where this is going. But, so God has not only declared the ends, but he's also declared the means by which he's going to build his kingdom. And we're the means. It's what Jesus said. It's what Jesus said in Matthew 28. Go, make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you, even until the end of the age. And so how can we be the means to the best of our ability? By being shrewd. By being like this agent. It doesn't mean we're underhanded or sneaky. When it says that the agent was shrewd, it meant that he was wise, that he was discerning, that he realized what was coming and what his course of action today should be. He was making the best use of his skills, and Jesus is saying that we too should make the best use of our skills, make the best use of our resources. We realize what is coming, friends. If we realize what is coming, that Jesus comes back. That he comes back and makes all things new. And that all of us get to enter into his father's house where there are many, many rooms. We get to feast with Christ forever. Well, then we know what our course of action should be with the stuff that he has loaned to us. We don't need to, to use it for our own, to secure our own future. We need to use it for his purposes. We need to use it in the way that Jesus tells us over and over throughout the entire Bible. What is our money for? What is our time for? Our time is for loving one another. Our time is for giving to the poor. Our time is for radical generosity. Our, our time and our money are for radical generosity for those who have less in light of this future that is already secured. The steward knew that he had no hope outside of his own skills and abilities. Our hope is secure because of Christ. I'll end with this, with how First Chronicles put it. We heard Sam read it. And sometimes we say it actually aloud together as our offertory verse. It says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power, the glory and the majesty and the victory. For all that is in heaven and all that is on earth are yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head above all. All things come from you and of your own. That's out of, out of what you've given us. Of your own have we given you. As children of the light, may we walk in the light. May we remember that our future is secured by a king who is light himself. And in him there is no darkness at all. May we remember that our future is known as residents of a city that doesn't even need lamps. Because the light of Christ in our midst will shine forever. And may we in the meantime, as the means that God has, has decided to use to build his kingdom... May we act as if that's actually true and not just a nice story. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.